as always. I'm thankful for the musicians who lead us in worship faithfully week by week. I'm thankful for all of you for being here today. This is the faithful remnant. (laughs) And we know that there's a reward for those who are faithful to the end. I want you to open your Bibles to John 13. You've heard the text read in John 13, 1 through 9. But I want you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to come back to another part of that text. I want you to be able to read it as we look at it together today. Frederick Buechner says, after being baptized by John in the River Jordan, Jesus went off to a lonely wilderness where he spent 40 days asking himself the question of what it meant to be Jesus. During Lent, Christians are supposed to ask one way or another what it means to be themselves. Or we could put it this way. We'd ask... Who is Jesus? And what does Jesus call us to be? So we move through Lent and we're coming now to Holy Week. And there the questions are answered. So join me in Holy Week today. We're going to begin on Thursday. Let's pray. Gracious God, we gather in your presence and pray that we might hear what you want us to hear so that we might be who you want us to be and so that we might do what you want us to do. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all the people said, Amen. With soaring spirits, the disciples climbed the stairs to the upper room. Their hearts were filled with joy, their minds awash with anticipation. You see, despite all Jesus' dire predictions of doom and gloom when we got to Jerusalem, things don't look that way. Perhaps Jesus was unnecessarily pessimistic. Consider the evidence. On Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem Cheering crowds paved the way with palm branches and waved those palm branches as signs of victory. 
they sang messianic songs. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. It, it was a word of praise, yes, but more than that, it was a plea, a cry, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a, a messianic psalm. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Jesus came to a cheering throng and they welcomed him with a welcome fit for a king. And why not? Jesus taught with a voice that had never been heard before. They said, we never heard anyone speak like this before. Jesus made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He cleansed leper skin. He freed the captives. Jesus fed thousands of people in the wilderness where there was no food. Jesus calmed the raging Galilean sea. And just a few days before, perhaps, just over the hill in Bethany, Jesus raised Lazarus from death to life. What power. Now he's come to Jerusalem. And that power to bring from death life, it could be used to bring from life death for the Romans. Now it's Thursday. Monday, of course, he went back to Jerusalem. He went straight into the temple and condemned it in no uncertain terms. He called it a den of thieves, a bandit's cave. And then he drove out the money changers in an act of righteous indignation worthy of a Messiah. Tuesday and Wednesday went back and forth from debate to debate. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, he bested all comers. Everything was going our way, can't you see? What we planned to happen is happening. And so they climbed the stairs that night, that Thursday night, with eager anticipation they gathered around the triclinium, laughing and talking, reveling in Jesus' rising tide of popularity, applauding his poll numbers. It was clear now that victory was within their grasp. And they were waiting now with eager anticipation for their final marching Orders. Let the revolution begin. And then, the unthinkable. They could never have imagined it in a million years. Jesus rose from his place, laid aside his robe, 
took a towel, walked to the door, poured water from a pitcher into a basin, and one by one he began to wash his disciples' feet. Foot washing. Had to be done. After a day, even an hour, on the dusty, rocky, dung-drenched trails of Judea, foot washing was an absolute necessity. So a pitcher and a basin and a towel, that were standard equipment in every Judean home. But foot washing, well, unless you had a slave or a particularly loving and loyal servant, foot washing was pretty much a do-it-yourself affair. In fact, some sources suggest that Jewish slaves could not be required to wash their master's feet. Yet here was the master washing the disciples' feet. I don't think we can really imagine how shocking this must have been. 2,000 years of telling and retelling this story, we domesticated. It's lost its power. It's lost its punch. But for these disciples in the upper room, the shock and surprise is retained in the story when we come to Peter's response to Jesus. Remember, you shall never wash my feet. That's really an understatement. This is in Greek emphatic negation. This is the strongest form of negative you can possibly use. It's not easy to translate in English. It's awkward. It would be something like, you will never wash my feet forever. Or, you will never, at any time, any place, under any circumstances, whatsoever, ever wash my feet forever. It ain't going to happen, Jesus. Foot watching was no job for Jesus. And Peter would have no part of it. Do you remember Jesus' response? You must remember it. Indeed, you must never, ever forget it. Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Peter, this is who I am. The son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Peter, this is who I am, and unless you can accept me for who I am, you have no part with me. The word translated part could be translated share. You have no share in my kingdom. It could be translated partner. You have no partnering in my work. Unless you can accept me for who I am, you have no part with me. And refusal to accept me for who I am makes you useless 
to me. Peter was stunned, I'm sure. Like at Caesarea Philippi, remember? When Jesus, after Peter had confessed him as Christ, when Jesus started talking for the first time about the fact that he would go to Jerusalem and be handed over and be put to death. And you remember Peter's response. We don't know what he said. Mark just says he he took him aside and rebuked him. Imagine. He's just said you're the Christ. And now he rebukes the Christ. This was Peter's rebuke in John. You'll never, ever wash my feet. As I wash your feet, you have no part with me. There's more. Open your Bibles that I open to John 13 and look with me at the rest of the story. Begin in verse 12. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their masters and messengers greater than the ones who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is who I am, Peter. The son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And this is who you must be too. I have given you an example. That you should do to others as I have done for you. So who is Jesus? (laughs) The one who came to serve. And who are we? The ones who are called to serve. To serve how? He said, just follow my example. Serve each other as I have served you. You 
You remember Mark 8 when Jesus and the disciples were going up to Jerusalem? And the disciples were kind of hanging back from Jesus and they were talking. And when they got to the place of rest, Jesus said, well, what were you talking about on the way? And they did not answer because they were talking about who was the greatest. And Jesus said, if you would be first, you must be last of all. And servant of all. Not of some, not of those who are like us, not of those who will not be a problem for us, all. The good, the bad, the righteous, the unrighteous, the rich, the poor, the strong, the weak, servant of all. It's not a matter of convenience, it's a matter of call. Then in chapter 10, they're still on the way to Jerusalem. The text says Jesus was going ahead of them. They're still lagging back. James and John come along. They want Jesus to do them a favor, remember? Grant that we might sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. While the ten become indignant. Because they think these two are bothering Jesus, wasting his time? I don't think so. They're angry because they didn't get there first to claim those chief seats. But of course, Jesus goes on to say, you really don't know what you're asking. If you did, you probably wouldn't be asking. And then he says this, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones tyrannize them, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Okay, maybe servant. Maybe servant, not slave. And slave of all. I think Paul got it right. He said this to the Philippians and to us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
not about how much I can get. It's about how much I can give. It's not about what benefits this will bring to me. It's about what benefits I can bring to you. It's not about how much power I can grab. It's about how much service I can render. So let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind in you. Paul understood that the cross is the place of our redemption. But he also understood that the cross was the paradigm for our lifestyle. So how do we get the mind of Christ? Because as I read these things, it's not going to happen with my mind. How do we get the mind of Christ? If anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I think there's intentional progression in those three statements. Because until I'm willing to deny myself, I'll never take up a cross. But until I take up a cross, I can never follow Jesus. And it's only in following Jesus that the mind of Christ can grow in me. I'm not interested in self-denial. But according to what we've looked at, that's where it all begins. Not where it ends. It's where it begins. Deny self. Take a cross. And follow me. I've given you an example. You should do for others as I've done for you. I who came not to be served but to serve and serve my life away for the sake of others. In 1634, 
a little village in Bavaria called Oberammergau made a vow to God. The bubonic plague was rampaging through the country. They asked God to spare them and promised that if he did, they would perform a reenactment of the passion of Christ. The village was practically bubonic free. And so they they had their first passion play. And every 10 years since then, every 10 years since then, they have repeated that play. For many years, a man named Anton Lang played the role of Jesus. One day, all the people in the cast who played the leading roles met with some reporters for a time of interview. In the interview, one of the reporters asked Mr. Lang this question. We noticed that you carry this heavy wooden cross all day long because the play could last up to eight hours. And I just wondered, did you ever think about having that cross fashioned out of some lighter material? Plywood. You could paint it all up and nobody would ever know. But it would be so much easier for you. Or how about styrofoam? You could paint it all up and nobody would ever know. It would be so much easier for you. Did you ever think about that? Mr. Lang paused. He looked all around at those reporters. And this is what he said. If I cannot feel the weight of the cross, I cannot play the part. If I cannot feel the weight of the cross, I cannot play The weight of the cross is the service of the world. I don't mean the world in general. I mean the world in particular. You know the particulars. They have names and faces and dirty feet just like me. The weight of the cross is the service of the world. So, are we ready to join Jesus' subversive 
counterintuitive, ever unreasonable, always impractical, hardly ever popular kingdom, whose weapons are not swords and spears or bullets and bombs, but a towel and a cross. This is who I am. The son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life away. Serve his life away for the sake of others. And this is who you must be, too. I can already hear the voices in the back of my mind. There must be some other way. Any way but that way. It appears that Jesus had the same thought in the garden. Lord, Take this cup from me. The question is, can we finish the prayer like Jesus did? Remember, nevertheless, Not my will, but thy will be done. It seems to me, it's just me, if we could say those words, Knowing who Jesus is and knowing who he's called us to be, we might just see God's kingdom come and God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Just imagine. If you know these things, you're blessed. Not if you know them. Not if you memorize them. Not if you can exegete them. Not if you can theologize them. If you know these things, you're blessed. If you do them,
So Lord Jesus, help us to be willing not just to know these things, but to do them. To take upon ourselves the weight of the cross. And serve ourselves away. Help us, Lord.